A big welcome back, everyone, to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, Season 5, Episode Number 4. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for the hair loss practitioner. And it was created for all those who wish to dive in to the fascinating and ever-changing world of hair loss. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for people with all different types of hair loss. Each week I'll review a handful of research studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you make sense of them, and give you my thoughts on how a given study just might change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, scarring alopecia, chemotherapy-induced hair loss. These are studies in all different types of hair loss. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created by the Donovan Hair Academy, and it was created to help all those who help all those with hair loss, and it was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. Today, it's my great pleasure to review five studies with you. For those of you who want a brief five to ten minute overview, a mini podcast within our longer podcast. Well, we'll begin that in under 30 seconds. And for those of you who want a bit more detail, the kind of detail that might allow you to incorporate all this new information into your own practice, well, you and I will dive in with some depth together. Thanks so much for joining me today. The second Monday of each month is dedicated to studies in alopecia areata, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis, and today we'll review four fascinating studies in the world of alopecia areata and one in trichotillomania. We'll begin with an interesting study by Cosme and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, April 2023. This is a wonderful study addressing the question can we switch from tofacitinib to baricitinib or baricitinib to tofacitinib with ease? Well, we'll review together this study and four key principles that the study allows us to generate. And these principles are, if you're a complete responder on tofacitinib, and for some reason you needed to change to baricitinib, you're probably likely to stay a complete responder on baricitinib. If you're a complete responder on tofacitinib, but then you flared and you lost hair, there's a 50% chance that you'll become a complete responder again on baricitinib. If you're a partial responder on tofacitinib, you grew some hair, but not all. Well, there's a 30% chance you'll be a complete responder should you switch to baricitinib. And principle number four, if you really didn't do so well on tofacitinib, then you're probably not going to do so well on baricitinib. We'll take a look at this study together. It's a really fascinating study and a study that answers questions for which I have been waiting for. And this is a wonderful study and I look forward to reviewing it with you today. Then we'll talk about a study by Dr. Hordinsky and colleagues addressing the use of ritlicitinib, litfulo, in adolescence. At the end of June, we had a webinar on the new FDA approval of ritlicitinib. This was the second FDA-approved JAK inhibitor for alopecia areata, and it was the Allegro 2B3 trials that led to the FDA approval of ritlicitinib. 
That trial had 718 patients, but 105 of them were adolescents, and that led to this FDA approval of ritlicitinib for ages 12 and above. And what Dr. Hordinsky presents here in this study from Pediatric Dermatology in July is the data from the adolescent group. There were 18 adolescents that received the 50 milligram dose, which was the FDA-approved dose of ritlicitinib. And the proportion of adolescents that achieved a SALT score of less than 20 at week 24 was 25%. And the proportion that achieved a SALT score of less than 20 at week 48 was 50%. And that data is very similar to the data in adults. And so I think this is really valuable information this subgroup analysis of the adolescent population, showing us that adolescents respond fairly similarly to ritlicitinib as do adults, and side effects may be slightly less. The most common side effects in adolescents were headaches, acne, nasopharyngitis. But we'll take a look at this very nice study looking at the ritlicitinib data in adolescents. And then we'll look at a study by George and colleagues in Dermatology and Therapy, August 2023, titled Incidence Rates of Infection, Malignancies, Thromboembolism, and Cardiovascular Events in an Alopecia Areata Cohort from a U.S. Claims Database. Really nice study which looks at the incidence rates of a variety of medical conditions in patients with alopecia areata compared to the general population. And the data shows us that patients with alopecia areata have similar rates of cancer, heart disease, blood clots, compared to the general population, perhaps a higher rate of herpes simplex. But what's so fascinating about this study is when you look at the data in patients with alopecia totalis, and alopecia universalis, you see a different result. And that is that when you compare the data from patients with alopecia totalis and universalis compared to milder forms of alopecia areata, you see that there's higher rates of infection, zoster, herpes simplex virus, in patients with totalis and universalis, a higher rate of cancer, including basal cell, squamous cell, malignant melanoma, and lymphoma, a higher rate of major uh, cardiac events, MI, heart failure, DVT, and pulmonary embolism. And this data in patients with totalis and universalis seems to be even higher than the general population. So we'll take a look at this really nice study together. I think it's really important, and it reminds us that when we think about alopecia areata, we probably need to split our thinking into advanced forms and mild forms. And I'll speak about the concept of lumpers and splitters. There's a bit of a push in the world to say alopecia areata is alopecia areata. Lump it all together. Move forward. But I'm a splitter, and I'll tell you why. And I do think that this data is a really nice reminder that... The clinical sequelae of alopecia totalis and universalis seems to be different than milder forms. 
And we need to keep that in mind. Higher risk of infection, higher risk of cancer, higher risk of venous thromboembolism in this study, higher risk of cardiac events. So we'll take a look at that really nice study together. And then we'll take a look at a study by Waskiel Bernat and colleagues. This wonderful group from Poland publishes a nice study in Dermatology and Therapy, August 2023, titled Markers of Venous Thromboembolism Risk in Patients with Alopecia Areata. Colon. Is there anything to worry about? And you can imagine with a title like that that perhaps there is something to worry about. The authors looked at three markers of venous thromboembolism risk. SFMC, or soluble fibrin monomer complex, TATC, or thrombin antithrombin complex, and F1 and F2, or prothrombin fragment 1 and 2. And so these are markers that appear in the blood in the earliest stages of coagulation and may be a sign that coagulation is taking place and maybe markers that there is a propensity here to forming blood clots. Waskiel Bernat and colleagues looked at these three markers in 51 patients with alopecia areata compared to 26 controls and found that there were higher levels of SFMC, or soluble fibrin monomer complex, and prothrombin fragment 1 and 2. Thrombin antithrombin complex was not increased. But there was an increase in these two markers in patients with alopecia areata compared to controls, and this was statistically significant. We'll take a look at this very nice study and tie it together with the nice study by George and colleagues telling us that maybe, just maybe, there is an increased risk of venous thromboembolism in patients with more advanced alopecia areata. And we'll dive into the literature from years gone by and talk about a number of other studies and how this is an evolving topic. Why is this so important? Well, we need to know the baseline diseases that our patients have. There's an incredible discussion going on right now. Do JAK inhibitors increase the risk of blood clots? And there's some evidence suggesting that in patients with alopecia areata, maybe they don't. Maybe they do. Seems like in other patient populations there might be a risk. But it's really not clear in alopecia areata. But an important concept is before we start talking about do these drugs increase the risk of blood clots, do these drugs increase the risk of blood clots, we need to know if the disease itself is associated with an increased risk of blood clots. And if it is, what groups get those blood clots? This is really important information. And so we'll take a look at these studies together. And then we'll take a look finally at a study by Moritz in JAMA Dermatology, July 2023. A very nice study looking at a new technique, habit replacement therapy, for a variety of disorders such as skin picking, trichotillomania, nail biting. This was a randomized controlled trial of 134 patients receiving habit replacement therapy and 134 controls. What the author showed with this new technique of habit replacement therapy is that 52.8% of those receiving habit replacement therapy reported a slight or moderate improvement in their symptoms compared to just 19.6% of controls. And we'll take a look at this 
habit replacement therapy and what it means and how easy it is to do. It doesn't stop these conditions completely, but it does improve things. And the authors point out that this could be a technique that can be refined further. And this could be a technique that allows some help while patients are awaiting referral for more definitive type treatment. But we'll take a look at this very nice study by Moritz and colleagues, JAMA Dermatology. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then. A study by Cosme and colleagues, JAMA Dermatology, April 2023, titled Switching Between Tofacitinib and Baricitinib in Alopecia Areata, A Review of Clinical Response. I really like this study. A wonderful study by Cosme and colleagues, including Rod Sinclair and colleagues from Australia. The authors here published this new study showing that there's a low chance of hair loss when a patient with full hair on tofacitinib changes to baricitinib. Tofacitinib and baricitinib, of course, are JAK inhibitors, these Janus kinase inhibitors. Baricitinib is FDA-approved for advanced forms of alopecia areata, and now ritlacitinib is as well. There's many reasons why a patient might need to change from one JAK inhibitor to another. It's possible the JAK inhibitor is not working, and so the clinician is wondering, should we try another JAK inhibitor? It could be that one JAK inhibitor used to be covered by insurance, and now with various approvals, the insurance company is only covering another one, and so the patient is considering changing. But what happens when we change JAK inhibitors? Is it a problem? So these authors from Australia set out to determine exactly what happens when patients switch JAK inhibitors? A really important question. Baricitinib is now FDA approved for advanced alopecia areata, and there's many patients in the United States, especially, who are on certain JAK inhibitors. And because of this new approval, are contemplating switching to baricitinib because in some cases that is what the insurance company will approve. So if a person is doing really well on tofacitinib, it's a very frightening concept to think about stopping tofacitinib and changing to baricitinib. Is it going to work as well? Will I lose my hair? These are discussions we have often. And this study allows us to answer the question, if you're doing great on tofacitinib, and now we're going to switch you to baricitinib, are you likely to keep doing great, or are you likely to lose hair? So the study addressed these questions. The authors had patients that switched from tofacitinib to baricitinib, and they also had patients that switched from baricitinib to tofacitinib. They only had four patients that switched from baricitinib to tofacitinib, so we won't go into those details because it's such a small number, it's difficult to make definitive conclusions. But they retrospectively reviewed the electronic records of patients with alopecia areata between April 2016 and April 2021, and they included in their study 77 patients, 48 male, 29 female, with a mean age of 39, 60% had patchy alopecia areata, 
11.7% had ophiasis, 13% had alopecia totalis, and 13% had universalis. And the mean baseline SALT score, or alopecia severity score, was 53.9. There were 73 patients that were first treated with tofacitinib. 30 of those patients had complete regrowth. 35 had partial regrowth and eight had no response at all. So there's four principles that we can harness from this wonderful study. The first is that if you're a complete responder on tofacitinib, you'll probably be a complete responder on baricitinib. So among the 30 patients with complete regrowth on tofacitinib, the authors reported that there were 16 patients that switched to baricitinib and 100% maintained their complete remission. So that's wonderful. 16 of 16 patients who were doing great on tofacitinib switched to baricitinib and continued to do great. Principle number two. If you were doing great on tofacitinib and then relapsed and lost hair, there's a 50% chance that you'll become a complete responder if you switch to baricitinib. So the authors report that there were nine complete responders on tofacitinib that ultimately relapsed and lost hair, and they were switched over to baricitinib. Five of those nine patients, 55.6%, experienced full regrowth on baricitinib and four patients had only partial regrowth when they were switched. So that's pretty good numbers. 50% can achieve full growth again, even though they were relapsing on tofacitinib. Principle number three, if you're a partial responder on tofacitinib, it helped some, didn't help completely. Well, there's a 30% chance that you'll do fabulous if you're switched to baricitinib. So there were 35 patients in this particular study that were partial responders to tofacitinib. 28.6% of those patients had a complete response when they switched over to baricitinib. Principle number four is really important as well. And that is if you're a poor responder on tofacitinib, you'll be a poor responder probably on baricitinib. And so if you put a patient on tofacitinib and they don't grow any hair or they don't change at all, probably not worthwhile to switch to baricitinib. So there were eight patients who didn't grow hair on tofacitinib. And when they were switched to baricitinib, none of those eight patients had full regrowth, but there was two patients that had some partial regrowth. This is a wonderful study. Much needed data that we've been waiting for. The data here suggests that for patients that are doing great on tofacitinib, switching to baricitinib is likely to lead to similar results. And if you're doing mediocre on tofacitinib, there's a chance that by switching to baricitinib, you'll do even better. A 30% chance. So complete responders on tofacitinib seem to maintain their hair, and that's really important because there's a whole group of people that are making these decisions right now in the world 
Should I leave my current JAK inhibitor like tofacitinib and start baricitinib? Well, if you're doing great on tofacitinib, that's a tough question. And there's lots of patients that I have that are doing fabulous on tofacitinib and are extremely fearful of stopping tofacitinib. I don't want to stop. I've gone through periods of my life with no hair. I don't want to return to that. I would rather just keep going with tofacitinib. These are tough questions. These are emotional questions. But this study teaches us that it seems that you should do great if you switch from tofacitinib to baricitinib. And patients that are partially responding to tofacitinib seem to do quite well when they switch as well. So these are the four principles that I harnessed from this study. If you're a complete responder on tofacitinib, you'll be a complete responder on baricitinib most likely. If you did well on tofacitinib but then relapsed, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be a great responder on baricitinib, at least 50% chance. If you're a partial responder on tofacitinib and you feel like, I need more, I need more, well, there's a 30% chance you're going to get that goal achieved if you switch to baricitinib. And if you're really not doing well on tofacitinib, really poor response, then switching to baricitinib probably doesn't make sense. Really like this study. Do check it out. We move on now to a really nice study by Dr. Hordinsky and colleague Efficacy and Safety of Ritlicitinib in Adolescents with Alopecia Areata. Results from the Allegro Phase 2B3 Randomized Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial. This is a study in Pediatric Dermatology, July 2023. Quite a lot of excitement right now about Ritlicitinib. It was FDA-approved in June 2023 for advanced alopecia areata, making it the second FDA-approved agent for advanced alopecia areata. We have baricitinib being the first systemic agent to be FDA-approved, and ritlicitinib being the second systemic FDA-approved agent that has gone through the rigorous FDA approval process. And on June 23rd, the news came in that ritlicitinib, called Litfulo, was FDA-approved for 12 and over, making it the first JAK inhibitor approved for adolescents with alopecia areata. So June 13th, 2022, was the approval of baricitinib. June 23rd, 2023, was the FDA approval of ritlicitinib. And for those of you who are interested, we had a webinar in June, at the end of June, what you need to know about the FDA approval of ritlicitinib. And it is posted on the Donovan Medical YouTube channel. I think it's about an hour in length, hour and 16 minutes in length. And we review the baricitinib trial. We review the ritlicitinib trial, walk through the side effects of these JAK inhibitors, how we go about prescribing them. So do check it out if it's something that you're interested in. The baricitinib trials were known as the BRAVE AA trials, and the ritlicitinib trials were known as the Allegro trials. And it was this wonderful study by Dr. King in The Lancet in May that led to that FDA approval of ritlicitinib. So the Allegro trials were studies in patients 12 years of age or over 
with alopecia areata and 50% or more scalp hair loss. And they received either ritlicitinib 50 milligrams or 30 milligrams with or without a loading dose or 10 milligrams or placebo for 24 weeks. And then the final 24 weeks was an extension period where patients who had received placebo were switched to drug. The endpoint, the primary endpoint of the Allegro trials was the proportion of patients achieving a SALT score of less than 20 at week 24. The SALT score is a measure of severity of alopecia areata. A SALT score of 0 means complete hair growth, and a SALT score of 100 means complete hair loss. And so we're looking at the proportion of patients with a SALT score of less than 20 at week 24, so 80% growth. The BRAVE AA trials looked at the proportion of patients receiving a SALT score less than 20 at week 36. So here the Allegro trial had their primary endpoint at week 24. The Allegro trials were complex. There were seven study groups. There was a placebo group that was receiving placebo for 24 weeks and then switched to ritlicitinib 50. There was a placebo group for 24 weeks and then switched to ritlicitinib 50 with a loading dose of 200 milligrams for a month. There was a ritlicitinib 10 milligram group, a ritlicitinib 30 milligram group with or without that 200 milligram loading dose for the first month. And there was a ritlicitinib 50 milligram group with or without a 200 milligram loading dose for the first month. And so there were these seven key groups. So even though the trial had 700 or so patients, there were these seven groups, and each group had 60 to 120 patients. So that's really important because there was only a limited number of people that received a given dose. And this particular Allegro 2B3 trial had adolescents, and each of these seven groups had anywhere from 9 or 10 up to 20 adolescents in the group as well. And the proportion of patients receiving achieving that SALT score of less than 20 at week 24 ranged from 14% with ritlicitinib 10, 23% with ritlicitinib 50, and 31% with ritlicitinib 50 with the loading dose of 200 milligrams. Placebo group had a SALT score less than 20 of around 2%. But it was the 50 milligram group that achieved, received the FDA approval. And so we'll take a look at this 50 milligram data because that was the dose that received FDA approval. So at week 24, the proportion of patients achieving a SALT score less than 20 was 23%. So 23% of patients in the Allegro 2B3 trials at 50 milligrams achieved the SALT score less than 20, 23%. By week 48, that rose to 43%. The proportion of patients achieving a SALT score less than 10, so really good regrowth, 90% regrowth, 
was 14% at week 24 and 31% at week 48. So now we, we look at the data from adolescence. And there was anywhere from 9 to 20 adolescents in each of these seven groups. And that's what Dr. Hordinsky and colleagues set out in this pediatric dermatology paper to do to review the data from adolescents. So there was 105 adolescents included in this Allegro 2B3 trial. There were 718 patients in total, but about 15% of them were adolescents. 51% were female. The mean age was around 15 years. And 43% had alopecia totalis and universalis. And the mean disease duration of these adolescents was 6.5 years. So that's really important. A large proportion of patients had very advanced disease. So what proportion of adolescents achieved a SALT score less than 20 at week 24 and 48? Well, it was very similar to the adult data. At week 24, 25% of adolescents achieved a SALT score less than 20, and at week 48, it was 50. And so very, very similar to the data in uh, adults. What proportion of patients achieved a SALT score less than 10? So really good growth at week 24. And week 48? Well, it was very similar again to the data in adults. And 13% of adolescents achieved a SALT score less than 10 at week 24, and that rose to 33% at week 48. So at week 48, of those receiving the 50 milligram dose, the FDA-approved dose, a third of patients achieved a SALT score less than 10, really fantastic growth. And 50%, half, achieved some pretty good growth. Rilicitinib was pretty well tolerated. Side effects were reported in around 65 to 80% of adolescents. And 80% of adolescents in the placebo groups also had side effects. Most common side effects, headaches, nasopharyngitis, acne. Two adolescents permanently stopped the study. One in the 50 milligram group because of urticaria or hives, and one in the 10 milligram group because of eczema or eczema. Across the entire study, remember there was these seven different groups, there were three serious adverse events. One patient had appendicitis in the 30 milligram ritlicitinib group with the 200 milligram one month loading dose. One patient had suicidal behavior in the 10 milligram group. And one patient had eczema in the 10 milligram group. There were no deaths, no cancers, no major adverse cardiovascular events no pulmonary embolism, no opportunistic infections, no herpes zoster. It's really important. Remember that JAK inhibitors come with this black box warning that JAK inhibitors may be associated with an increased risk of death, cardiovascular events, pulmonary embolism and venous thromboembolism, infections. And this is based on data, of course, in 
other populations like the rheumatoid arthritis population. And so it's not clear if this really applies to patients with alopecia areata, but this is reassuring to see that in our pediatric patients, there is no increased risk of these issues at this 48-week time point. There was no alteration in growth. These adolescents grew as their physicians thought they should grow. There were some slight bumps in CKs or muscle enzymes, but they were not severe. There were some slight changes in cholesterol, but again, those were not severe as well. So all in all, it appears that ritlicitinib is pretty well tolerated in this adolescent group. We only have 18 participants receiving the 50 milligram dose. This is the FDA-approved dose. There's 105 or so adolescents in this Allegro 2B3 trial, but only 18 received the 50 milligram dose. And that's where I, I chose to look at in much of the discussion today, because that's the dose that our adolescent patients will receive if they start ritlicitinib. But nevertheless, it, it seems that the responses are pretty similar to what we see in adults. 25% achieve a SALT score less than 20 at week 24, and that bumps to 50% by week 48. That's pretty good. 50% of our patients have some pretty good regrowth after almost a year on the drug. But we must remember that another 50% don't. And so what do we do with those 50%? And there's a number of options, of course. Add other therapies with the JAK inhibitors, such as topical or oral minoxidil, change the JAK inhibitor to another JAK inhibitor, and consider other therapies that also have evidence for advanced alopecia areata. Side effects are pretty mild in the pediatric group. There's not a lot of patients to collect data on, but still, in the 100 or so patients receiving these various doses, seemed side effects were pretty rare. And of those that did have the bumps in CK and cholesterol, they're minor. We still need to follow blood tests, just like we do in adults, and the protocol for prescribing JAK inhibitors is the same in pediatrics as in adults. This is a study at 24 and 48 weeks. What we really need to know, of course, is are there any side effects that develop over the long run? What side effects might occur after 5, 10, 20 years on the drug? JAK inhibitors for patients with advanced alopecia areata are lifelong, so some patients would be anticipated to need this drug for 30, 50, 60 more years, 70, 80 more years. So that's a long time. What side effects occur if a person's been on a JAK inhibitor 50 years? We don't know. The JAK inhibitors in the adult population have really been around in rheumatoid arthritis for maybe 10 years. So we don't really know what happens when a person's on a JAK inhibitor for 70 years. We know from very nice data presented at the American Academy of Dermatology by Dr. Senna and Dr. King that some patients on baricitinib lose their nice benefits as they go into year two. So not everybody who's doing great at year one keeps doing great in year two. So how does that data apply to ritlicitinib? Well, we don't know. We need long-term data. Do patients on ritlicitinib keep doing better and better and better, or do they too lose some effect? Maybe 10 or 15% of patients start losing hair again in year two. 
So we don't know lots of unanswered questions, but this is wonderful. Our second FDA-approved treatment for advanced alopecia areata, new options for this challenging condition. And we'll be hearing a lot more about long-term data as the years go on. So we move on now to a study by George and colleagues in Dermatology and Therapy, August 2023, titled Incidence Rates of Infections, Malignancies, Thromboembolism, and Cardiovascular Events in an Alopecia Areata Cohort from a U.S. Claims Database. Really nice study. It's a study that shows that when you look at alopecia areata patients as a total group, their risk of heart disease, cancer, blood clots seems to be pretty similar to the general population. Herpes simplex seems to be higher in alopecia areata patients. But when you actually look at the data subdivided into alopecia totalis and universalis compared to milder forms, we see something completely different. And so let's dive in this together. The emerging data over the last few years has taught us that alopecia areata is associated with a number of medical conditions. It's associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, possibly an increased risk of certain cancers, possibly an increased risk of thromboembolic disease. And this data has been accumulating for a few years now. Some nice studies a number of years ago by Connick and colleagues showed us very clearly that patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for metabolic syndrome, heart attacks, strokes, high cholesterol, diabetes. A very nice study by Schneeweiss and colleagues was published in JAMA Dermatology in July 2021 titled Incidence of Venous Thromboembolism in Patients with Dermatologist-Diagnosed Chronic Inflammatory Skin Diseases. A nice study in JAMA Dermatology that suggested that no need to worry. Patients with alopecia areata don't have an increased risk of blood clots. So Schneeweiss and colleagues found that patients with alopecia areata had similar risk for blood clots as patients in the general population. They performed a cohort study using a commercial claims database looking at data from 2004 to 2019. There was 158,000 patients with various types of skin disease in that study, but there were 17,889 patients available to look at with alopecia areata. And after some statistical analysis, they found that the risk of blood clots or venous thromboembolic disease was about 1. 0.97 with a confidence interval 0.65 to 1.46. So overlapping 1. The hazard ratio almost 1. In other words, it doesn't really seem to be an increased risk of blood clots in patients with alopecia areata. That's good news. The reason this is so important is the concept of blood clots is so, so important to the alopecia areata field. 
ongoing studies are looking at whether alopecia areata is associated with an increased risk of blood clots. And ongoing studies are looking at whether the drugs we use to treat alopecia areata are associated with an increased risk of blood clots. And it's really not clear if the drugs we use, like JAK inhibitors, increase the risk of blood clots. So George and colleagues have this nice study in Dermatology and Therapy, August 2023. They looked at the risk of a variety of medical conditions in alopecia areata compared to the general population. And then in Part 2 went on to say, well, let's not just look at alopecia areata in general. Let's divide it into alopecia totalis and universalis and milder forms, and let's see what the data shows. And the data showed some pretty surprising things. So it was a retrospective cohort study that used medical and pharmaceutical claims data from a big database, looking at data from October 2016 to September 2020. Patients were 12 and older, and they were age, sex, and race matched in a three-to-one ratio. So controls, there were three times more controls in this study. They looked at the incidence of herpes infections, malignancies, major adverse cardiovascular events, and thromboembolic events. Why look at these? Well, these are obviously very important to look at because they have very serious sequelae on patients if you have a heart attack or a blood clot or a cancer or an infection. But these are the issues that form the black box warning for our JAK inhibitors. So the authors want to understand what is the baseline risk of these diseases in patients before we even put them on a drug? Do they have an increased risk of infections, heart disease, blood clots, cancer? So in total, there was 8,784 patients with alopecia areata. 7% had totalis and universalis, so 600. 93% had less severe forms, so that's 8,000. 185 patients, and they were matched 3 to 1 with 26,000 patients that didn't have alopecia areata in this claims database. And they calculated the incidence rates per 1,000 person years, looking at the incidence of herpes simplex, herpes zoster, cancer, major adverse cardiac events, venous thromboembolism. And what they found when they calculated the incidence rates was that serious infections was pretty similar in alopecia areata compared to non-alopecia areata groups. But there was a higher rate of herpes simplex in alopecia areata, 19.5 per 1,000 person years compared to 9.7 in non-alopecia groups. The rate of herpes zoster was similar. The rate of cancer was similar, the rate of major adverse cardiac events was similar, and the rate of venous thromboembolic disease was similar. Pretty reassuring. Herpes simplex did stand out as having a higher incidence rate in alopecia areata, but the other conditions seem to be pretty similar. 
But how does the data compare? When you look at those 600 individuals in this claims data with alopecia totalis and universalis? Well, a number of surprises. And that is the patients with alopecia totalis and universalis had higher incidence rates compared to patients with less severe forms, including higher rates of hospitalization due to serious infection, herpes zoster, herpes simplex, cancer, including basal cell, squamous cell, melanoma, lymphoma, major adverse cardiac events, hospitalization because of congestive heart failure, coronary revascularization, pulmonary embolism, and DVT, and all-cause death. So this paper is available free online. Do check it out. It's a wonderful paper. Incidence rates of infections, malignancies, thromboembolism, and cardiovascular events in an alopecia areata cohort from a U.S. claims database. So when you look at serious infections, herpes zoster and herpes simplex, the bar graphs that the authors show are higher with totalis and universalis than they are with less severe forms of alopecia areata. And when you look at the data and what the incidence rates look like in the general population, one can see that patients with totalis and universalis seem to have higher rates of infection, needing hospitalization, zoster, and herpes simplex than the general population as well. When you look at cancer, patients with alopecia totalis and universalis have a higher rate of all cancers compared to milder forms of alopecia areata, a higher rate of basal cell, squamous cell, melanoma, lymphoma. The rates of breast cancer and cervical carcinoma in situ seem to be the same. But the rates of cancer, basal cell, squamous cell, melanoma, lymphoma, seem to be higher in totalis and universalis than the data in the general population. And when you look at major adverse cardiac events, cardiac death, heart attacks, hospitalization from heart failure, DVT, PE, deep vein thromboses, and pulmonary embolism, we see that the rates are higher in alopecia totalis and universalis compared to milder forms. And this data seems to be higher than the general population. So I think this is really an important study. If we compare the general population to the general big alopecia areata group, it seems that the rates of things seem the same. But when you subdivide the alopecia areata group and focus, focus, focus on totalis and universalis, you see something completely different. And that is that there's a higher rate of cancer, infection, heart, disease, death, so I think this is really important for us all to think about. Certainly as a total group, there's a higher risk of herpes simplex. The authors propose that that may be because these patients are on immunosuppressants. But there's a higher rate of all these comorbidities in totalis and universalis. This isn't a small number. There's 600 patients 
with Totalis and Universalis in this claims database to study. So what do we do with this information? Well, more studies are clearly needed. I don't think we know what to do with this information. Do we need more screening? If there is an increased risk of heart disease, death, blood clots, cancer in our patients with Totalis and Universalis, should we have more aggressive cutoffs for cholesterol? Should we have more aggressive blood pressure cutoffs? Should we do cancer screening any differently? Our patients with Totalis and Universalis go on JAK inhibitors. The cholesterol goes up. We look at data and we say, you know what? The cholesterol went up, but it's still okay. Is it really okay? Or does the fact that they're at increased risk for major adverse cardiac events, death, heart attacks, coronary revascularization, heart failure, does that make us sit back and say, Maybe we should do something about that cholesterol. We don't know. I think the one of the toughest questions is, if patients with totalis and universalis are at increased risk for blood clots, DVTs and PEs, then what about patients on oral contraceptives who are going on JAK inhibitors? Right now, we don't really think too much about that, and that is that it's acceptable for them, for many patients to be on an oral contraceptive and a JAK inhibitor. Not everyone. That needs to be reviewed on a case-by-case basis. But what about a patient who has obesity and is on an oral contraceptive and has totalis and is now going to go on a JAK inhibitor? Well, we need to talk about this. We need to, as a community, discuss this. Because obesity, female being on an oral contraceptive, now going on a JAK inhibitor. Those are three possible risks. And totalis, those are are risks for blood clots. And so these are tough questions. Tough questions doesn't mean we don't answer them. Tough questions means we answer them with evidence-based medicine. But I think we need to talk about this. And we are not talking about it. But we should. It's been several years now since Connick's wonderful study of this increased risk of heart disease, strokes, high cholesterol, diabetes in patients with alopecia areata. And I, th- I think we're getting around to thinking about this, but it's slow. And it's it's obviously going to need some good dialogue with our colleagues in other fields to come on board and help us study this. And it's happening. I can feel it happening, but it's, it is slow. But this is a really important study. Are you a lumper or a splitter? There's a major push in our field to lump all alopecia areata together and say, let's think about it as alopecia areata. Let's not think about totalis and universalis, ophiasis. But I don't think we're ready to do that yet. I'm a splitter. In other words, I absolutely think that my patient with totalis and universalis needs different neurons firing in my brain than a person with patchy alopecia areata. This study by George and colleagues tells us, yes, they do need you, Jeff, 
to fire different neurons because those patients with advanced alopecia areata may have an increased risk of cancer, blood clots, heart disease, venous thromboembolic disease. We still have a long ways to go to the finish line for alopecia areata. It's really exciting that we have these JAK inhibitors. But for advanced alopecia areata, maybe 20%, 30% of patients achieve fantastic, outstanding results. So we have a whole lot of patients that don't. And so that tells us that, you know, we're not at the finish line yet. We've still got a lot of work to do. And when you're not at the finish line, that signals to me that we're not ready to be lumpers yet. That when we don't really understand a disease, it means that we probably still need to break it down and be splitters. Now think about totalis and universalis separate from patchy alopecia areata. I don't think we're ready to be lumpers yet. It's clear in my mind that totalis and universalis are different. They have a unique set of comorbidities. And this study by George is a really wonderful reminder of that. That when you're going in to see a patient with totalis and universalis, that really you need to have in your mind some sort of alarm bells to, to trigger your brain to think slightly differently than when you're going in to see a patient with one patch of alopecia areata. At least I think that way. Because if you don't have alarm bells going off in your mind, and I don't mean panic bells, I mean alarm bells, something that signals you to think differently. But if you don't have any kind of alarm bells like that, how are you going to remember that there's an increased risk of cancer, heart disease, infections, and blood clots? How are you going to pause for a moment when you see an an individual female, 28 years old, with a BMI of 38, on an oral contraceptive with Totalis, who's now going to start a JAK inhibitor, how are you going to not pause and say to yourself, I wonder if there's anything different I should do? If you don't have that alarm bell, how are you going to not say that, okay, we're starting this patient on a treatment and their cholesterol is slightly high, their father died of a massive MI at 42, that maybe just maybe I really have to think carefully about the cardiovascular disease issues in this patient. An aunt had a stroke in another patient at 51. I think we have to ask these questions. I think we really need to understand our histories of our patients with advanced alopecia areata quite well. We, of course, need to understand the history of patients with patchy alopecia areata as well. But I think the study by George tells us that alopecia totalis and universalis probably need to make us pause and think about all of these issues. So I think we need to be splitters. And uh, that's my view on this topic. I think we owe it to our patients to be splitters. I think we owe it to our patients to see something very unique and special about totalis and universalis and make sure we're doing everything we can to address these possible issues of heart disease, cancer, blood clots, infection. We need more good studies like this to verify and back this up. 
But I think that there's large data now that supports the increased risk of heart disease. There's this emerging data in blood clots that we can't ignore, and data emerging now in, with different researchers from different countries looking at cancer, and the infection data we seem to agree with as well. Another nice study by Waskiel Burnett and colleagues, this group from Poland, including Lydia Rudnika, titled Markers of Venous Thromboembolism Risk in Patients with Alopecia Areata. Colon, is there anything to worry about? Another nice paper, August 2023, in Dermatology and, Dermatology and Therapy. Are blood clots more likely in alopecia areata? Well, we just reviewed this nice study by George and colleagues suggesting that maybe just maybe in totalis and universalis they are. But there's a number of medical conditions that seem to be increased in alopecia areata. A number of studies over the years have looked at whether patients with alopecia areata have an increased risk of blood clots. A 2015 study by Sudnik looked at the role of selectins. A study by Shikoi in the Italian Journal of Dermatology and Venereology looked at whether D-dimers were increased. And this study by Schneeweiss that we reviewed looked at the risk of blood clots. So let's briefly talk about these and then we'll dive into this very nice study from Poland. So in 2015, Sudnik and colleagues looked at the levels of selectins, P-selectin, E-selectin, L-selectins, whether they're increased in alopecia areata compared to controls. P-selectin, E-selectin, they're potential markers of thrombosis. So that 2015 study looked at 64 patients with alopecia areata and 40 controls, and they found that Levels of E-selectin, P-selectin, L-selectin were higher in alopecia areata compared to controls. And the levels of E-selectin and L-selectins correlated with disease severity. Chicoyer published this nice study in the Italian Journal of Dermatology and Venereology looking at D-dimer levels, as well as other markers like CRP, but found that D-dimer levels were slightly higher in alopecia areata compared to controls. And D-dimers are possible biomarkers of blood clots. So we have that 2015 study that suggests maybe, just maybe, there's an increased risk of blood clots. The 2021 study suggesting maybe, just maybe, there's an increased risk of blood clots or the propensity for blood clots. That 2021 study by Schneeweiss from Harvard suggested, nope, doesn't seem to be an increased risk of blood clots in alopecia areata. Then we have this nice study from George and colleagues that we just reviewed suggesting, yep, doesn't seem to be an increased risk unless you look at totalis and universalis separately. And if you look at totalis and universalis separately, lo and behold, there does seem to be an increased risk of blood clots and pulmonary embolisms. So now we have this nice study by Waskiel Bernat, Dermatology and Therapy, August 2023. The authors here look at several markers of venous thromboembolic risk 
in alopecia areata compared to controls. They look at soluble fibrin monomer complex, thrombin, antithrombin complex, TATC, and prothrombin fragment 1 and 2. These are markers that appear in the blood in the earliest stages of coagulation. They are serving to detect prothrombotic states at the earliest possible stage, earlier than when many lab tests can pick it up. So these are markers of coagulation. So Waskiel Burnett studied 51 patients with alopecia areata and compared their data to 26 controls. They looked at the levels of SFMC. They looked at the levels of thrombin-antithrombin complex and the levels of prothrombin fragment 1 and 2. 35 females, 16 males formed the alopecia areata group. 18 females and 8 males formed the control groups. Mean age in both was around 37, 38, and the two groups were relatively similar. And they used ELISA kits to measure those three coagulation markers. What did they find? Well, the levels of SFMC were higher in alopecia areata compared to the control, statistically significantly higher levels of this soluble fibrin monomer complex, and higher levels of prothrombin fragment 1 and 2. And there were no differences in the levels of thrombin-antithrombin complex, or TATC. Interestingly, there was no significant correlation between those markers, SFMC and FM1 and 2, and the SALT score, or the disease duration. But another interesting study that seems to provide the suggestion that there's something different going on in alopecia areata compared to controls, something different here that might be responsible for an increased risk of blood clots. And the author's paper asks the question, is there anything to worry about? Now, the Schneeweiss paper from 2021, that paper from Harvard, suggests shouldn't be anything to worry about. doesn't seem to there's an increased risk of blood clots. But this paper by George and colleagues that I just reviewed suggests, yeah, maybe there's something to worry about, especially in totalis and universalis, where maybe there's an increased risk of blood clots, DVTs, pulmonary embolisms. So there's now several markers of venous thromboembolic disease that are slightly increased in alopecia areata. Slightly higher D-dimer levels, slightly higher SFMC or soluble fibrin monomer complexes, and slightly higher prothrombin fragment 1 and 2. Slightly higher coagulation markers and higher selectins as well. More work is needed to understand what all this means. This is a new field. This is a new field of hair loss medicine, a field that reminds us that we can't just look at the scalp, that patients that we see in our clinic have hearts and lungs and blood vessels and kidneys and livers. And this is a field of hair loss medicine where we have to be thinking systemically. Why don't these markers correlate with severity? In other words, why don't patients with 
alopecia totalis and universalis have higher D-dimer levels than mild alopecia areata? Or why don't patients with severe alopecia areata have higher SFMC and F1 and F2 levels? Well, we don't know. It could be because these studies are small. We don't have as big of studies as we need to answer that question. Or it could be that we don't fully understand this clot process. But it's interesting. It's really opening up a whole new field of, of investigation as we think about heart disease, blood clots, cancer, not only with the medications, but at baseline. So we move now finally to a nice study by Moritz and colleagues titled Self-Help Habit Replacement in Individuals with Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, a Proof-of-Concept Randomized Clinical Trial, a study in JAMA Dermatology, July 2023, a nice study which looks at a new technique, Habit Replacement Therapy for individuals with body-focused repetitive behaviors. Body-focused repetitive behaviors includes skin picking, trichotillomania, nail biting. And so these are all characterized by an urge to manipulate some part of the body that leads to visible damage, leads to hair loss, leads to excoriations on the skin from skin picking, leads to nail biting and, and bitten nails. These are common issues in the population. And as we talk about often, when we talk about trichotillomania, the most effective therapy for trichotillomania is not SSRIs, is not olanzapine, N-acetylcysteine, or clomipramine. These come in second, third, and fourth place. Most effective treatment is habit reversal therapy, as we understand now. And habit reversal therapy are these techniques that psychologists and psychiatrists and other trained individuals work with patients with trichotillomania to allow them to stop their hair pulling and identify the urge and substitute it with other behaviors. So the authors here in this JAMA Dermatology paper tell us about a new technique called habit replacement therapy. It's a technique where individuals learn to replace their current behaviors with another behavior, another repetitive behavior that is self-soothing, benign, and relatively inconspicuous. And it differs from other techniques. Traditional habit reversal involves identifying the urge to bite the nails, pull the hair, pick the skin, and identify the urge, freeze, and perform a substitute behavior like sitting on one's hands, clenching one's hands, putting one's hands in his or her pockets. But this habit replacement that the authors propose is different. They propose behaviors that are soothing, involving gentle stroking motions. And we'll get to that in a minute. But in this study, individuals with 
skin picking, trichotillomania, nail biting, lip cheek biting. Between the ages of 18 and 80 were recruited from social media and randomized to either this habit replacement therapy or a control, just the wait list. And they looked at outcomes six weeks later. So there were 481 individuals that were recruited. Some were excluded. And the final sample included 268 participants, and they were randomized to either the habit replacement technique, which we'll talk about in a minute, or a wait list. 68% of patients had skin picking, 28% had trichotillomania, 36% had nail biting, 26 had lip cheek biting. So patients with habit replacement therapy were shown a video on behaviors that they could perform when they felt there was an urge to bite their nails, pull their hair, pick their skin, bite their cheek. And this is available online, the video that participants were shown. And do check it out. It's very interesting. And the authors here propose that this may be a technique that is easy for patients to learn and can be used while they're waiting referral to, an, to another therapist for more definitive treatment. But they inv involve a number of self-soothing techniques, such as taking your thumb and your second and third finger and gently performing circular motions with the pads of your fingers, or a gentle tapping, or taking your hands and putting your fingertips together and gently tapping or performing circular motions, or gently stroking the hairs very lightly on your forearm, not with your nails, but just with the pads of your fingers, or gently touching your clothing with circular motions or making small circles in the palm of one of your hands. And so when the urge to pick your skin or pull your hair or bite your nails comes on, these are behaviors that can be performed instead. And so they looked at a number of primary and secondary outcomes in individuals that were in the treatment group and the control, including a generic body-focused repetitive behavior scale, which looks at these behaviors and how commonly they were performed. Secondary outcomes include a quality of life scale. Were there, were there changes in quality of life? Were there changes in depressive scales? And overall, was there an improvement in global impression scales? So 89% of patients in this study were women, mostly white women. Mean age was 36.8 years. 79% in the habit replacement group completed the final assessment. And 76% in the control group completed the final assessment. Overall, habit replacement therapy seemed helpful. Patients liked it. There was an improvement in quality of life. Improvement in depression scales. But when you look at the proportion of patients who reported slight improvements or much improvement, 
That was 52.8 in the habit replacement group compared to 20% in the waitlist control group. So patients liked habit replacement therapy. Of all the body-focused repetitive behaviors, nail-biting seemed to be the group that, that most benefited from this habit replacement therapy. But all in all, this is a preliminary study. The authors propose it as a proof-of-concept study that this is relatively easy for patients to learn, has modest benefits, and it may be a strategy that patients can adopt while waiting for referral for more definitive therapy. It doesn't stop all skin pulling, hair pulling, nail biting, but it helps. It helps people feel better, reduces depressive symptoms, and people feel that they're improving. And it's easy to learn. That video online, do check it out. It's only a minute and a half. And with that minute and a half, you can learn one, two, or three techniques. And that's what the authors suggest here that patients should learn and that perhaps you can focus on as a practitioner. But they're very easy to learn. Taking your fingertips and your thumb together, tapping or circular motions, circular motions on your forearm, circular motions in the palm of your hand or on your clothing. And these can help people. Four out of five individuals would use this technique again, and many would recommend it to a friend with similar problems. It's a small study. Short duration, six weeks, so it's not clear how generalizable it is. These are largely studies which recruit from social media, largely studies of white women, 36 years of age. How generalizable is it to the bigger population with these body-focused repetitive behaviors? Well, it's not clear. But this is a preliminary proof-of-concept study that really opens the doors to more studies of this area. So that's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. We've reviewed five really interesting studies. We started with a study by Cosme and colleagues in the JAD, looking at how easy is it to switch from tofacitinib to baricitinib. And we reviewed four principles from their nice JAD study. If you're a complete responder to tofacitinib and you need to switch to baricitinib, you'll probably do well. If you're a complete responder on tofacitinib, but you're flaring and you're getting worse and worse and worse, then there's a pretty good chance, 50% or so, that you'll again be a complete responder on baricitinib. And if you're a partial responder on tofacitinib, there's a chance, if you switch to baricitinib, that you'll become a complete responder. 30% chance. But an equally important message is, if you're not really doing well on tofacitinib at all, you probably won't do well on baricitinib. We looked at a nice study by Dr. Hordinsky and colleagues, Pediatric Dermatology, July 2023, looking at the adolescent data from the Allegro 2B3 study. A study which teaches us that at week 24 and at week 48, adolescent patients seem to do just as well as adult patients. And it seems that at week 48, about 50% of adolescents achieve a SALT score of less than 20. Side effects, pretty mild. Headaches, acne, nasopharyngitis, 
are the most common, but other side effects can occur. Then we looked at a really nice study by George and colleagues in Dermatology and Therapy, August 2023, suggesting that when you look at the total alopecia areata population compared to the general population, rates of cancer, heart disease, blood clots seem the same. Higher risk of herpes simplex in patients with alopecia areata. But when you look at the rates specifically in alopecia totalis and universalis compared to milder forms of alopecia areata and the general population, there seems to be a higher rate of infection, zoster, herpes simplex in the totalis and universalis groups. There seems to be a higher rate of cancer, basal cell squamous cell melanoma, lymphoma, and a higher rate of major adverse cardiac events, pulmonary embolism, and DVT. Really important study for us to know about. We talked about the Waskiel-Burnett study, looking at these markers of blood clots. Soluble fibrin monomer complex prothrombin fragment 1 and 2 were increased in patients with alopecia areata compared to controls. On one hand, you might say it's a small study. But on the other hand, you might say it's sometimes hard to find statistical significance in a small study. And here we find statistical significance in these 51 patients with alopecia areata and the 26 controls. What do we do with this data? It's not clear. But there's an increased level of these two biomarkers of blood clots in patients with alopecia areata seems to be higher D-dimer levels, slightly, in patients with alopecia areata in another study, and higher levels of selectins in a study dating back to 2015. So really important data. I don't think we know what to do with it yet. And finally, this nice study of habit replacement therapy in the JAMA Dermatology, July 2023 issue by Moritz, that this habit replacement therapy technique could help patients with body-focused repetitive behaviors, including trichotillomania, as well as skin picking and nail biting. So I think this is a preliminary study, which the authors set out to perform this proof of concept study, but nevertheless, a study which we may hear about more as we go about thinking about these techniques to help patients with trichotillomania. This is so important. SSRIs are not the number one treatment for trichotillomania. Olanzapine, clomipramine, and acetylcysteine are not the number one treatments for trichotillomania. It's these techniques like habit reversal therapies and techniques like this may be in fact very important and very relevant to the treatment of trichotillomania and other body-focused repetitive behaviors. So we need more studies like this. These are proving to be the most important therapies. And so clearly we need to explore further these therapies that are at the top of the list. Finally, before I say goodbye, let me remind you that if you're a hair loss practitioner, perhaps a dermatologist or family physician who sees hair loss, or if you're a dermatology resident or plastic surgery trainee, or you're a fellow, and you'd like to dive in and learn more about hair loss with me, well, you might consider applying to the Evidence-Based Hair Fellowship. This is a training program which starts January 2024 and runs for 87 weeks, Wednesdays or Thursdays, depending on where in the world you live. 
It's a fun and intensive program that molds and sculpts the participant into a hair loss expert with knowledge and skills to engage in lifelong evidence-based patient-centered care. Details about the program and everything you need to know about it are found on the Donovan Medical website at donovanmedical.com forward slash donovan-hair-academy or you can find information on the YouTube channel Donovan Medical. You can also email us at any time at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Well, that's it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next week. It will be the third Monday of the month of August, and we'll be back talking about some interesting studies in the area of scarring alopecia. And I look forward to welcoming you back here on the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Bye for now.